Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk the business of sports and the business of, of, other, things. of other things, Joe, with uh, industry executives and personalities. Uh, and I do that every week with my partner, Joe Favorito. Welcome, Joe, to a new show. Thanks, Tom. And you know, it's funny. We used to have the problem of uh, I know ambulances and fire engines going by. Now, because of the new swanky space we use in Midtown, thanks to our crack producer, Maurice, we have the clicking of heels going by on a wooden floor. Right, and, and the heels start. Here, here we go. Let's, let's just be quiet and listen to the heels. Okay, there, we've proved there we our point. And that wasn't on cue. That was just uh, part of the scene here in this office. Um, but anyway... Uh, Happy to be doing a new show and a little bit different than ones we usually do because we have someone here who's really interesting uh, and she is not just a sports person. She's also a Broadway person. So we're going to talk a little bit about Broadway and a little bit of the crossover in terms of fan development between Broadway and sports. But uh, we'd like to introduce our guest, Brisa Trincaro, who is the founder of Shoein, a disruptive ticketing platform some of you may have heard of for really interesting business. And she's also a very successful Broadway producer and investor. So welcome, Brisa. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Brisa, let's actually get to know you a little bit. Let's back up the tape. Talk about how you made it from the West Coast to New York City, the Big Apple, and how you got into Broadway and then how you got into sports. And I want to talk in a few minutes about Shuin specifically, but I think the Broadway experience is quite interesting and really relevant to the conversation. I should give a disclaimer that both Joe and I have had the pleasure of meeting Brisa before, so we know a little bit of this, but there's a lot more to learn. So, so tell us the story. Yeah, so I grew up in Portland, Oregon. So, you know, just right around the corner from Broadway, <laughs> 3,000 miles away. Um, and I went to school out there, got my MBA, but knew very specifically that I wanted to work in the business side of live entertainment. And so I... And, and what drove that? Because I, always, I, I grew up as a theater nerd. I always okay. loved shows, you know, loved live events, concerts, sports, you know, all of that. And, but I knew that I didn't want to be on the stage or on the field. And it really wasn't until college and graduate school that I realized that there was such a big world that was the business side of it. Because growing up, you really only have access to what you can see on the stage or on the field and don't realize that there are all the people making it happen behind the scenes. Okay, so you have that dream, you finish graduate school, and you come across the country. And you land in midtown Manhattan. Yes. So, so how, did you, how did you make it all work? I came here really cold. I didn't know a lot of people, and I certainly didn't know a lot of people in the Broadway world. And so I did old-fashioned networking. I met with the two people in the Broadway world that I knew, explained to them that I wanted to get involved in the world, how does it work, asked them a million questions. They were very generous to talk to me. And then I ended every conversation with, you know, thanks for your time, who else should I be talking to? And every single one of those conversations led me to another couple people who were generous enough to take meetings, who led me to another couple people. And by taking you know, five or six meetings a day, I was able to very quickly get to know a lot of people in the industry and learn a lot about the business. Yeah, and then what, so what would, what would be the first break that you got to actually start the, the journey? So I, I don't do things small. <laughs> I jumped in the deep end and got involved as a co-producer on a show called Bonnie and Clyde. This was in 2011. 
and jumped in with both feet. So to be a Broadway producer, to even get a seat at the table, you have to start by raising quite a bit of money. You have to bring you know a million dollars to a show. And I know Joe's worked in Broadway, is very familiar with that routine. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, because I had a fundraising background from working in theater in Portland, I, I knew how to raise money for shows and I had a real passion for that. And I was able to, to round up the funding to be able to get involved. And you know, Broadway is a very opaque business, so here I am raising a bunch of money for a show, but also learning how it's working at the same time. So right. it was, there were a lot of moving parts. So was the, was the fundraising the primary skill set that got, kind of got you in the door? Absolutely. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's interesting. For the business side of theater, just like in the startup world, you can have all the great ideas you want, you know, a great musical right. or a great startup idea, but it always comes down to the money to get it off the ground. Yeah. So, so basically your pitch to the other producers was, I know I'm new at this, but I can help raise money. And yep. I'm confident about doing that. And suddenly they take your yeah. calls. Right. <laughs> okay. and, that, and that is Broadway. You raise money. That's You raise money and spend money on plays. That's yeah. how it works. I, I don't know if a lot of us uh, non-Broadway people realize how much goes into just the act of raising or the, the importance of raising money to actually just get the process off the ground. Uh, we would like to think, I guess, that it's just the, the the idea and the concept and the creative part of it, but it always comes back to business, right, Joe? It's um, it's all about the money. I think if you can raise the money, you can have a play called Cream Cheese, and a theater will put it on because you're bringing them what they need, which is trying to put seats in the house for a while. And yeah. if you had Cream Cheese starring Mel Gibson, you'd get a seven month run right away. So. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's very true. Okay, so the first one was Bonnie and Clyde. So, so where to go after that? And that show was a huge flop. <laughs> and the the bad news was the show was a flop. The good news was it was the best possible Broadway education I could have had because when shows are successful, as many of my shows subsequently have been, you don't really learn what makes a show work because you know, to Joe's, Joe's point, if you have a star or a hit. You know the shows are able to run themselves more smoothly. When right. a show is having trouble, that's when you really learn what mistakes were made in the budgeting or in the marketing or just assumptions about the audience fit or the timing that were off. And having a show that didn't work, I, I thought of it almost like another college degree. That right. that money was spent on learning how to do this. And you know, all of my investors who were involved at that point are all very happy now because I was able, they weren't at the time, they were all sad, but I was able to come up with my own personal algorithm for which shows to get involved with, which shows to produce, which shows to invest in, and that served me so well. And so I've more a, than made up for all of A personal algorithm. Personal that's, algorithm. That's interesting. Can you, can you share what's in that algorithm or is that top yeah, secret? No, it's, it's very much... Uh, about the discipline on how to pick projects. And it's very much the same way that you hear about angel investors investing in startups. And actually, the term angel investor was invented for Broadway. Really? That was a Broadway term long before it was ever used for tech. Um, But it it comes down to the people. The first thing I look at is who's running the show? Who's the producer? Do they know what they're doing? Do they have a track record of success? Because a strong leader, a strong basically CEO of the show can make a mediocre show successful, but a bad producer can make even the best show flop. The next thing I look at is the financials. You know, is it budgeted correctly? Does it make sense? Is it 
are the week over week costs because there's a lot of human capital involved in these shows, a lot of salaries, hundreds of people a week. You know, is has that been put together in a intelligent and sustainable way. And then only as the third factor do I look at the actual content. And I run it through a, you know, why this, why now test. Is this something that is relevant to audiences of today? After that failure, that was a great learning experience, you moved on to the next one. What, what was next and, what, and, and how did it um, proceed from there? Well, so I, in, the, in that first season, Broadway seasons run from the fall to the spring. Bonnie and Clyde was in the fall, and it failed, and all of my friends from Portland said, oh my gosh, I can't believe you left Portland and moved to New York, and your show failed, what a huge mistake. Of course, I was having a blast, so I, I didn't really care, but you know, getting all this feedback, oh, what a huge mistake you've made. Then fast forward six months later, I was a producer on the revival of Porgy and Bess, and won my first Tony. At which point, all my friends in Portland said, "Oh, you're so smart! What a great move! You knew exactly what you're doing." Right. So. It's kind of like general managers who have winning records and win championships. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like exactly. The smartest guys in the business. Exactly. And, and but, but that's the nature of the business. Right. And I think having the patience and and a, a thick enough skin for that, because there are ups. And, the, the bad news is there are big downs, but the good news is the next day you can be back on top again. Okay, so Porgy and Bess, and then? And, and now I have over 20 shows that I've been involved with. I won my second Tony for Pippin, the revival. Um, you know, most recently was involved in Hamilton as an investor, which has obviously been an incredible experience to be part of it from the beginning. I, I ran across Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote Hamilton, when he was doing a show called In the Heights seven years before Hamilton ever existed and had been following it from the beginning. So do you actually have on the mantle the little phonograph thing somewhere? Well, I have my two Tony Awards on the mantle. So you do actually physically, so she should have brought them with well, They're heavy. We need, we need a picture of Maurice to, <laughs> yeah. to, to, to throw in here. But I, let me ask you about Hamilton, because that's obviously this incredible uh, phenomenon. Did you guys have a sense early on that this could be really big? Well, it's interesting because the because Lynn Manuel Miranda is clearly a genius, had a very different voice than we're used to hearing on Broadway, and anybody who was fortunate enough to get to spend any time with him could just sense that there was something extraordinary about him. He really had something, but when he started talking about the show Hamilton, about a founding father that most people had never heard of, and and talking about this story and then saying we're going to do it as a rap you know a lot of people were skeptical they're like all right you know lynn you're a genius but but this is <laughs> sounds like an unusual topic and, and an unusual treatment of it but he did some early songs probably five or six years before it came to broadway at the white house and then did another concert at um, lincoln center and even from the couple songs that were written originally, you could tell that it was going to be huge. Yeah, and then how soon after it premiered? Well, was it the public theater first? For right, okay. Time? But I guess that's what I'm wondering, just the timing. Like how soon after it premiered public theater? It moved almost immediately, yeah, which okay. is unusual. And, 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 but, but pretty much from the beginning, the producers knew we got, we got something special here. Yeah, and yeah. there was just such a groundswell of hype and passion around it that they just 
brought it right in. Right. Okay. You know, it just dawned on me, Joe, that I neglected to tell everybody that you actually have Broadway experience. We think of Joe, of course. I don't have one on a mantle. Though, well, so. I know, Not but yet. you got some good experience. Did you guys work together on any projects? No, no I, don't, okay. I don't actually remember where I met you for the first time. So, but okay. <laughs> uh, we know a lot of the same people, obviously. You know, Tommy Kale, who directed Lombardi and Magic Bird, directed Hamilton. Um, my college roommate's brother-in-law is Andy Biedenbach, who was the the, the um, choreographer for In the Heights and for um, Hamilton. So I've, I've been around those shows for a while. So, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's an interesting it's a great way to lose money if you don't know what you're doing. So. And I assume when when you talk about the your investors now being happy, you had that one failure in the beginning, um, but almost like a VC, you know, you are facilitating the the, the raising of money or investing directly, and Everybody knows the rules of engagement. Like, this can work, but the odds are it won't work. So I don't know what the number is in business, but Oof. I think it's you know less than 10% of new companies succeed, maybe and, maybe five. And, and it's even lower. Like, musicals is like 2%. Right? No, musicals are a little bit higher. I One think, in right? five will recoup yeah, their investment. Right. Wow. And when you think wow. about recoup, I mean, when you think about, you know, Spider-Man and the amount of money that was lost right. on Spider-Man. And there's other things that could happen when it goes on the road, if it's sold to a movie, um, you know, the, there are other ways other than just kind of the... And also just... Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Finish. Yeah, I, I guess this is an interesting question I never How thought about get before. get on this topic, by the way? Well, it's, it's a nice change of pace. Let's talk about Lombardi. Um, so when you, when you establish a budget and you're going to do that fundraising, obviously kind of the big budget musical that has orchestras and lots of course um, participants and things like that are way more expensive than... A Eugene O'Neill drama or well, something like but that. But expensive correct? in New York because you have to deal with unions in New York. Right, so, but but a, typically a musical would be ex- significantly higher. Mm-hmm. Than, yeah, the than, average cost just to turn the lights on for the very first preview performance on Broadway would be about fifteen million dollars. Yeah, wow. I was going to say twenty, but fifteen yeah. is probably about right. Wow, and you and you went through this with yeah, a couple we raised, of your experiences, um, right? They weren't musicals. Well, right. Lombardi the musical could have been kind of fun, but. Um, yeah, I mean, Who would have but, played Vince? Uh, Dan probably, no, actually Dan can't sing, so he probably wouldn't have done it. But we would have found, you know. Travolta. No, it would have been probably like Julia Roberts. Okay. You know, so, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was Tony Pontuero and Fran Kerms are raised, were responsible for raising the money. And, you know, it was a lot of money. And um, we had the longest drama run on Broadway for that season. And she kind of relaunched Judith Light's career. And It was a great show. It was a great show. I loved it. And the people have come out of it. And again, this is a people business. So, you know, Chris Sullivan's now on This Is Us. You know, Dan Laurie has had some interesting stuff. Judith has gone on to, you know, ridiculous success with various right. things. So, uh, you know, Tommy Kale's had his own career. Um, so it was, it was a great, like Brisa said, it was, it's an amazing experience for someone with a strong stomach. Yeah. So. And, and, and guys, I gather it's kind of like the VC business as well in, in the, uh, by dint of the fact that you have a success, suddenly people are taking your calls, suddenly people are more willing to give you their money, et cetera. So, I, so that sounds like that happened to you, Brisa, and oh, that's what yeah. allowed you to do those other, all those other shows. Absolutely. And yeah. it's, Broadway is a really fun investment, and I won't bring in anybody as an investor that isn't passionate about the art form. You know, I, it's a very cool thing to get to be in that inner circle of Broadway as an right. investor. And so I only invite in people that are going to enjoy coming to opening night and enjoy the 
news and who, who's coming into the cast and what's happening. I want to see the show a bunch of times. I mean, that's, it's a really great experience, whether the show is financially successful or not. I mean, some of my favorite shows, I may have not invested in them, and that's something I teach my investors. Sometimes your favorite show is something you just want to buy a ticket for. You, mm -hmm. You'll see it every night. Maybe it's not a great investment, but you love it. And, and that's, you know, the business. You know, I love The Last Ship which was Sting's musical, and it did terrible. Yeah, great example. Yeah. Um, bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson. There are lots that don't make it, and honestly, and there are lots that don't make it and are Tony-nominated as well. It's a very kind of strange mix, yeah. but you know, you talked about the success of Lombardi led to two other plays, which Tony and Fran really led the fundraising on and partnered with Major League Baseball and the NBA on the other two um, because of the success of Lombardi. And Lombardi, It's funny with Lombardi because... You go to, it's like the people who were uh, at Ted Williams' last home run at Fenway Park where there were like 1,000 people there. But now there's like 75,000 people who were there. I don't go by a day with someone said they saw Lombardi. Right. And I, I don't know how they all could have been there because right. it's a really small theater circle in the square. But it's it, kind of the legend that has lived on and we're actually, you know, who knows, there may be something down the line is the NFL is coming up to their 100th anniversary in two years, so... Ooh, so we'll see. Interesting thought. All right, well, let's let's actually transition out of the, nah, uh, the Broadway scene to sports. And it's a, it's a good segue because I think of something like Hamilton, and I have not had the good fortune to see it yet. I'm, really, Tom? I'm dying to see it. No. Wow. Um, I was hoping you could get me a ticket, but uh, it hasn't happened yet. Chicago? We could do that. <laughs> yeah, it'd probably be easier and cheaper, right? Um, but anyway, so one of the things that frustrates us consumers, regular, regular consumers of Broadway tickets, is what um, a quagmire the whole ticketing thing has become for popular shows, Hamilton being the best example. Bruce, now the Springsteen and now, show. And the Springsteen yeah. show uh, in New York, et cetera. So you know a lot about that from your production uh, experience, and you're now with Shuin doing a business that relates to that issue, especially as it uh, works uh, structurally in the world of sports ticketing. So let's talk about Shuin. Tell us about how you got the idea and how you got it going. Well, it was definitely born out of my work on Broadway and my experience with Broadway ticketing, specifically around shows like Hamilton and now Hello, Dolly, another show I'm involved with. I, I wish I was involved with Bruce Springsteen's show. But really seeing that for my friends and family, they can't come see Hamilton because they can't spend $5,000 a ticket. But for me as an investor, we're still selling our tickets for maybe $500. So somebody else, some yep. broker or ticket bot is coming middle, in, man. yeah, right. and pulling a ton of money out of the system that's hurting the fans and you know, taking money away from the people creating these works. And so I had run across this concept of to use financial terms options on tickets where you buy what we call a reservation to say uh, well, anyway, we'll get to how that works. But I ran across this concept and realized that it was a great way to go around the secondary market and get fans direct access to face value tickets. And so I decided to start in sports and the way our model works. And you can go on to shoein.com right now on your phone or on your computer and buy a reservation. Uh, we have a lot of... Uh, markets running in the college football space. So if you're a Big Ten fan, if your team makes it to the Big Ten championship, you know you absolutely have to be there. And if you wait to find out that your team actually makes the game, those tickets are going to be five times face value. So what you can do is you can go on to Shoein right now, mid-football season, and for 50 bucks, buy a reservation on your team. If your team makes it, you've locked in the right to buy a face value ticket. 
If your team doesn't make it, you're just at your 50 bucks. But you save so much money if your team makes it that you can put your 50 bucks down you know, year over year. And, and the reservation price is based on the likelihood of a team going. So a hot team could be 50, 75 bucks. You know, a, a underdog team might be 10 bucks, but you know, as we know, there are huge upsets in college football. Right. And so it's, it's fun, it's very gamified and very, very fan friendly. So, and we talked about this when you spoke in our class, this isn't new, it's been tried before, but your model, and you should talk about your model and how it's different today as what has been done in the last you know, 10 to 12 years. Yeah, so the, this concept was originally created by some companies that were really leaning into the financial model, making it kind of like a stock trading platform right. for tickets, which is great, but it attracted a lot of Wall Street people and a lot of ticket speculators and institutional ticket brokers. And it wasn't solving the problem that I was seeing that these true blue real fans weren't getting access. And so I took the model and completely re-envisioned it to be a platform for fans. Took out all the financial terms. You, you are buying an option, but you don't know that because the average fan sitting in a sports bar after a couple beers isn't going to want to buy an option. Right. They just want to lock Have in a, a reservation. financial transaction. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, that's very <laughs> off-putting. So, yeah. you know, I, I told my tech team, you know, this needs to be something that a fan can do after three beers at halftime and know exactly what they're getting, lock it in, really tie into that fan passion, and, and most importantly, guarantee that these fans who have historically been priced out of the Super Bowl or the NBA Finals can actually have a shot at getting access if they're willing to you know, make a reservation on their team. So what has been the market reception? It sounds like you've had success in the college space. Hugely positive. Yeah, which, which is really interesting, and I can, I can understand why. Uh, what about the big leagues and some of the other sports in the business? So because we're a platform, we not only have to market to the end user fans, but to your point, we need to get inventory for these right. games directly from the teams and leagues. So one of the things that's important is that we only sell reservations against tickets that we have. Right. Because we want to make sure that when that fan's reservation pays off, that we can actually deliver a ticket, and we always do. So... When I started the company two years ago, I actually went to all the teams and leagues up front and said, I know you're familiar with this concept. I know you've seen it before. I'm doing a completely new take on it. And if I do this, is this something you're going to be interested in doing? Because if they had said, you know, we're not interested, then you know, fine, I, I won't bother. Right. But they all said, we've always loved this concept. We would love to see it done right. Your plan sounds great. We love the fan forward approach. It's very timely right now because, you know, every championship or playoffs, the headlines are always most expensive ticket ever, you know, and this is a way to combat that. And so it was nice to have their support going into it. Did that support translate into deals? That's where we are now. Okay. And it is, it <laughs> okay. is. So I can't go on shoe in right now and buy a ticket for the Yankees game tonight? Not, too, not too late, obviously. <laughs> Look for baseball next year. Right. But right now, we have a lot of football on the site at yeah. shoein.com. So most of the leagues, I think all of the leagues, Tom, have a deal with a secondary marketplace now, I would think, correct? Well, now the NFL just renewed with Ticketmaster, right. and that includes the whole kit and caboodle, yep. primary so, and secondary. Yep. So explain why um, Shoein is an option for them when those companies are not doing this, or why don't those companies do this? So we call ourselves the pre-primary market. So a new word. We got yes, a new word. It's, a, it's, a, it's a new. It's a new. Uh, yeah, in in the, in the ticketing landscape, currently 
people are used to the primary tickets where you go and buy a face value ticket and then secondary ticket market where it's you know the resale where they can get really expensive so what we call this is pre-primary that you're buying a reservation on a ticket that may not ever exist you know buying a ticket on a team that doesn't end up making the game you know it, it's an entirely new market segment and so companies like Ticketmaster and even companies like StubHub have no problem with us because we're not actually taking anything from them. Once the ticket's issued and the fan takes delivery of the ticket, if they want to sell it on secondary, they can. You know, we're encouraging real fans who actually want to go to be our buyers, but at the end of the day, you know, that fan can do what they want with the ticket. So we're not we're not competing with any well, let's, of the Let's take players. an example. So I'm not sure, no one knows yet who's going to be in the Rose Bowl, but it's a popular one. So let's, let's say I'm a USC fan, and I'm thinking, I'd really love to get a ticket. I'm going to go to Shoe in register, and I'm going to buy a USC ticket, for, which ostensibly is face value. So let's say that's $150. Yep. I don't know what it would be at the Rose Bowl. Um, and USC does not make the Rose Bowl. Where does that 150 go or stay? So for the Rose Bowl, we're selling reservations to... Uh, you know, Rose Bowl's a semifinal game. So to fans of every team. So the Rose right, Bowl, so, fans, so the right, USC right. fan, you know, their reservation goes to zero. Right. But whichever team makes it, the fans that hold those reservations get the ticket. Right. But that, that extra money, the surplus money that comes into the market is kept primarily by So we share that with our inventory partners. Yeah. And, and so that's why not only do fans love it because they're getting into the game, but our partners, our league partners and our team partners love it because it's a completely new revenue stream. That yeah. multiplier effect of selling a $20 reservation across all the different fan bases is is completely it's new incremental you revenue. We're gamified before, but it is a little it is a little bit of a game experience. Yeah. And and as long as everybody's willing to take accept those rules of engagement, um, it seems like it's a win win win. Yeah, absolutely. So you touched on a couple. Who are some of the better partners that you have right now, and what are some of the success stories that you've seen? Uh, we love the Big Ten. They were our very first partner. They did a huge pilot program with us last college season, which was our, our first year, and have been great partners and a hugely successful market. I mean, they we actually do a three-way partnership with them between the Big Ten League for ticket inventory and the Big Ten Network for marketing it to their fans because they see it as a hugely positive opportunity from a fan optics perspective while also you know generating a bunch of new revenue for them so that's been a huge success and seeing some of the big upsets last season was really exciting for the big 10 championship and you know we offer seating all different seating zones so they're able to get a lot of data on these fans too because like last year's a great example you know we sold out Michigan across all these seating zones provided all that data back to the big 10 Michigan didn't end up making that game but they had engaged all of those fans all season long, whereas before shoo-in, they didn't have access. They only had access to the two teams that actually went. We were able to engage and monetize all of the Big Ten teams. It really makes a lot of sense. Um, I hope it goes well because uh, as, just as a fan and a consumer, uh, I'd be happy to, to uh, take advantage of this. So does it have applications in Broadway? Is that something you're thinking about? So we're looking at Broadway. Broadway doesn't have the contingent right. factor, you know, and that, that's really what is fun and gamified about it is, you know, you don't know who's going to the Super Bowl. You don't know who's going to the Big Ten Championship. Broadway is a little bit more consistent. But as we talked about with a show like Springsteen, 
you could conceivably, if it's a hit, say, and you know it's a limited run, you could say, if you want to buy a ticket now for May, we can hook you up for May, even if though the, if it's renewed. If, it, if it's renewed, right? Yeah, absolutely, and that'd be fun. I would love yeah. to so be let's able do to that. Renewals, it. yeah, renewals, <laughs> renewals make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. okay, quickly before we wrap up with final questions, I just want to get one more kind of big picture question, uh, and, and I guess we'll address this briefly with limited time left. Is there stuff now that you're deeper into the sports business? You think Broadway can learn from sports and vice versa? Absolutely. And it's people always say, you know, what were you thinking moving from Broadway to sports? All my theater friends said, what are you doing in sports? Aren't those the kids that used to beat us up in high school? (laughs) But but from a business perspective, it's a very similar business. It's all live entertainment. There's lots of human capital. It's you know, putting butts in seats. These these are events, you know, it's, it's perishable inventory. The game happens and it's over. And if you haven't maximized every element of that night or that afternoon, you know, on the football field, then it's, it's gone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there have been a lot of similarities and a lot of, I've, I've enjoyed being a bridge between the two worlds to be able to bring some of the innovations and in sports into Broadway and vice versa. Right. And then is there something you learned on Broadway now that you know sports a little bit better that you can see as an immediate, uh, not uh, other than the, the, the ticketing, uh, the options market? Uh, is there something that the sports business could be doing from something you learned on Broadway? Well, I think Broadway is starting to embrace the, the theater world more and, and include some of those themes in, in the work they're doing. And I mean, one of the most fascinating statistics to me is that on an annual basis, more people see Broadway shows than all of the New York sports teams combined. Interesting. So, you know, Broadway's getting a lot of people through those doors every year. All right, Joe, you want to wrap? Sure. Um, We like to ask everybody two questions who come on. Um, Where do you stay informed? Who do you listen to? What do you follow? Your newsletter, Joe. That's where I get all my news. (laughs) You know, there were a couple of weeks where... I think you have to ask the question by saying, what, how do you stay informed like, other than my Sunday newsletter? Realistically. Um, right. So that, that, that was number one. And then the second thing is, and you touched on a little bit of this, but we have a lot of students who listen. So what kind of advice do you give people who are looking to start out as, whether it's in sports or entertainment or entrepreneurship? So how do you stay informed? And then uh, what advice do you have for, for the great unwashed? <laughs> so I, I stay informed. I get a lot of email newsletters. I mean, I think we all have this challenge of overload of content. And so finding uh, places where it's curated, like hashtag sports, I really like. Obviously, a sports business journal. Um, Broadway has a thing called Broadway Briefing that rounds up the latest news. Things like the skim for, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, but any of those things, I, I hope, it seems like people are moving more and more in the direction of curating this kind of content around different themes. And I love that. I'll subscribe to all of them because there's mm-hmm. just so much out there. Um, and then as far as advice, I, I just have a couple things that have worked for me that I've lived by as I've been going through my career. And one is I was told early on to have a passion for taking on the hard stuff and really start with whatever the hardest things were. So like we talked about in theater, fundraising is by far the hardest piece. And so rather than trying to avoid it or work around it, just going head on and saying, I'm just going to figure out how to fundraise and have a passion for it and learn to love it, which I now do, and really focus on that. And that allowed me to accelerate my career 
much faster. And same thing in sports, not trying to build this little company and hope it works, but walk right in the front door of the NFL and say, here's what I'm doing. What do you think? And that served me really well to just jump in and do the hardest, scariest parts first. Yeah. And also, I think one thing that was you kind of answered the question in telling the story about how you came from Portland to New York um, and got going, which was this idea of reaching out, as Joe likes to say, just showing up. Um, the incessant meetings and coffees and dinners and drinks and things like that. And I know when we spoke um, separately, you were telling me about that um, uh, scenario where you use a specific bar, Sardi's, yep. which is the big Broadway bar in midtown Manhattan, and kind of camped out and got to meet a lot of people. So it's, it's a really instructive lesson. So someday I have a great Vincent Sardi story that I won't tell you right now. But okay. Oh, no, I want to hear. I don't know. Do we have time for that? <laughs> yeah, no. I don't think we do. Um, all right. Well, this is waving. We got to go. Yeah, so. we, we're, getting, we're getting the wave. Um, Gosh, that was really interesting. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Wait, we got to promote Shuin and Brisa. So Shuin first. Yeah, so Shuin.com, S-H-O-O-W-I-N.com. Go buy your college football reservations now and sign up for a notification for when we have uh, next round tickets. We have NBA coming up, NHL. You know, you should find everything there. And the Uh, mobile app, too? Well, you can use it on your phone. Okay. So it's just as a mobile website. Yeah, exactly. And um, follow me on... Twitter, B-R-I-S-A-T-R-I-N-C-H-E-R-O, Brisa Trincaro. Um, you know, feel free to reach out via LinkedIn if you are interested in, in doing something with us. That's fantastic. Well, thanks, Brisa. Thank that you. Was really fun. Joe, thank you. Always uh, a pleasure, Tom. Thank you, Maurice. Yes, it is always a pleasure, and you always learn something new. So thanks, everybody, for listening. This was our interview with Brisa Trincaro, who's the founder of Shuin and a very successful Broadway producer and investor. Um, and we wish you luck with Shuin. It's, it's a great idea. I think we'll all be checking it out now. And um, appreciate you telling us about it. So thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and the host is Joe Fabrito. My production assistant this week is Columbia student Reese Eisenman. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other key platforms. Also find it at blogtalkradio.com forward slash the cusp show. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter at CU underscore SPS underscore sports. Also, you can find out more about our program, Columbia University Sports Management Program, by going online at sps.columbia.edu forward slash sports hyphen management. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.